Welcome to the Sit and Ponder Podcast, where we seek to practice the art of pondering the Scripture. Today I'm starting a series on what it meant to Jesus to be a true disciple. So grab your warm beverage of choice, have a seat, and prepare to reflect. Today, I want to begin speaking about discipleship and the cost of discipleship, or at least one major aspect of it, from Luke 14. Let's give it a read first, and then I want to just share a few words on my thoughts on this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. This text has almost become cliche in in Christianity. Um, it's obviously a statement uh, about having strict allegiance to Jesus. But it's interesting that he's got great crowds accompanying him when he says this. He's got quite a following at this moment. He's got people walking around with him because he's healing them, because he's feeding them, because he's kind, because he's benevolent, because he's gentle. And then he turns to them and says this. He delivers something very harsh, very hard to understand. In fact, in other texts, he says things like this, and the crowds will say, this is a hard saying, who can handle it? Jesus was not afraid to say things that were difficult for people to handle as long as he felt that there was a greater purpose in what he was saying. And in this situation, um, Jesus keys in on something really, really significant. He basically addresses every type of family member that a person would have in their immediate circle, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Jesus is literally saying that you need to hate, and of course, in the Greek, this is an ethical hatred. It's not a opposite of agape love type of hatred. It's an ethical hatred. It's a, it's a ranking style of hatred. It's a love more type of hatred. So Jesus isn't literally asking them to have vitriol in their heart or extreme anger in their heart for their own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. He's not asking them to have murderous intent um, regarding their father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. What he is asking them to do is to, without question, always put Jesus ahead of father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even one's own life. So this begs the question, what does it literally practically mean to do this? Well, that's a deep, deep question. This is an example of where you as a reader and I as a reader should be spending a significant amount of time meditating upon this. It is extremely natural for a man in this case to or a woman to put their spouse, their father, mother, children, and their own life ahead of what God asked them to do. There's a really deep implication in this statement that there will be times, most likely, where Jesus will ask you to do something 
that will question whether or not you value him more or your family or your own life, which could be referring to your physical life, which could be referring to your livelihood, which could be referring to anything within the content of your life. There might be times in persecution where you have to do something that will put you in prison, would put your family in prison, would put your children in a dangerous situation because of your allegiance to Jesus. There might be times when God will ask you to do things, to move places, to sell things, to be generous, to allow someone into your home, to let someone stay in your home for an extended time, to leave your family for a time to go provide aid to a friend or to a group of people in need. And it will mean that your family will suffer or you will suffer. Jesus may ask you to do something that compromises the quality of life of your family, the overall quality of life, the financial security of your family, the certain future of happiness for your family might have to be sacrificed or given up for periods of time. Jesus has asked men and women throughout history to do things where these kinds of things were real effects of the decisions that they made. And so as we meditate upon this, we shouldn't just say in our hearts, of course, Jesus needs to be the most important in my life. And then go about our day just thinking, yeah, of course, also, my wife, kids, mother, father, and myself need to be happy. We need to be comfortable. We need to be relaxed. We need to be taken care of. We need to have financial security. No, sometimes it means that we need to take risks. Sometimes it means that we need to display kindness, put ourselves in situations where we struggle with disagreement, depression, anxiety sometimes even, and have to work through those things with the Lord. Throughout history and in the scripture, sometimes there were extended periods for people where they experienced depression, struggles, physical torment and pain, being tortured, being imprisoned, having their families in environments where there was a lot of hostility. Think of Noah being the only preacher of righteousness in the world and his family being amidst that evil. Think of Lot in Sodom. Lot was called a righteous man, though it's hard for us to see it. Think of David being hunted and living in caves, even though he was the anointed king. Think of Jeremiah lamenting his miserable life when no one would listen to him, even though he was being faithful. We could go on and on and on. Consider Jesus on the cross, the ultimate example of taking all the pain I've just mentioned, all the suffering I've just mentioned, he bore on the cross. He bore, bore the summation of all of the horrible things that we're going to endure. So when he asks us to be his disciple, he's not asking us to do something he hasn't already provided for in the cross. Paul says similarly to the text we're looking at today in Philippians 3, For I count all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord.
And he said, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death that I may somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then he goes on to say that all of those of us who are mature should take such a view of things. So Paul is saying something very similar to what we're reading here today, that he counts everything lost in comparison to knowing Jesus and following and being his disciple. So Jesus is truly offering us something great and has provided already the strength and ability to suffer even extreme things. And Paul even views knowing Jesus as following not only Jesus for the benefits of eternal life and knowing him, but following him and wanting to fellowship in his sufferings, being conformed to his death. In America, we do not have a good theology about suffering. We don't understand the eternal value of suffering for how it displays who Jesus is to people around us. And so Paul didn't want to suffer for suffering's sake. He wanted to suffer for Jesus' sake so that others could see Jesus in him and his relationship with Jesus and the tremendous power that that relationship with Jesus has in giving us the ability and the provision through the cross to endure unbelievable things and maintain joy and peace and the other fruit of the Spirit. And sometimes our family member will not agree with us and might resent us. And sometimes our children might even resent us for the kinds of decisions that we made because they're not on board with the Lord. We see an example like this in the wife of Job. When Job suffers and did nothing wrong, Job's wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? She does not understand at that point Job's faithfulness to God. And Job responds very simply with, shall we accept the good from God and not the bad or the evil? So what's profound about this text to me is that you can mine this out in meditation for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an entire lifetime. Throughout the course of my life with my wife and children and my friends and my own happiness and my own comfort and satisfaction, there's been deeper and deeper meditations throughout my entire life on what this passage really means. And it means to me intellectually, maybe not always practically, that I have to entrust myself solely to God when it comes to obedience. And that when I'm obedient to God and trust that he has my good in mind and my family's good, then I'm free. And furthermore, I have to have the right definition of good for me and my family. And that correct definition of good is rooted in eternal life, which is my relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, to know me and the one whom he has sent. So my urge today is to meditate on whether or not 
you've mined out in your mind and heart what it means for Jesus to be first in regards to your family, maybe even your friends, your close relationships, and yes, even in your own life. How much do you assume that quote-unquote goodness should come your way? The kind of goodness I'm speaking of here is not true, spiritual, eternal life-based goodness. It's selfishness, personal peace, affluence, wealth, comfort, luxury, things in this life that are temporal. Do we overly assume that these types of quote-unquote good things should be happening to us rather than longing for the spiritual goodness that God offers us exclusively in Jesus? And how much are you living in the reality of the eternal life that you already have in Christ, which is not fundamentally waiting to get to heaven after you die? Instead, eternal life is what Jesus says it is. It is to know God the Father and the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ, the one and only. Consider Job when he was in the absolute pit of despair having lost his children and most of his possessions. And even his friends, his closest friends, were accusing him of being punished by God for wrongdoing, an unjust accusation indeed. Job clings to this in the middle of the narrative about his testimony of his life. For I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that once my flesh is destroyed, I will again see my God face to face. Job, even before the Old Testament was written, without any written scripture, had a relationship with God and believed in the resurrection that he would, after his flesh was destroyed, see God face to face. He was living in a reality of eternal life which was knowing the Father. And he entrusted himself to obedience to that Father because he knew that in the end, he was eternally good. And even though he suffered the loss of almost everything, he continued to remain faithful in his depression, in his despair, in his anguish, in his physical pain. To me, this is what this meditation is really, really about when it comes to hating your family and your own life. So Jesus wasn't actually calling people ultimately to give up something. He was calling them to turn away from something that wasn't near as fulfilling as being his disciple and in relationship with him. He was asking them to transfer from a paltry life to a life full of real life. All right, folks, let's end it there for the day. This is me, your host, Tom Wells, signing off. We'll continue this series in the next podcast, looking more at what it means to be a disciple according to Jesus and looking at more details regarding the cost of discipleship. Thanks for tuning in.